0: Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate, lots of questions swirling around like confetti, lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain, sleepless nights, shallow breathing, Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a saint's split. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. This is the second last episode of Season 2 of the podcast, and Part 2 of my series about the recent changes to family law legislation, and specifically the Divorce Act, which applies across Canada, and to the Children's Law Reform Act, which applies in Ontario. In Part 1 of the series, I talked about new language we will now be using to describe Parenting arrangements, but also about the justice system's renewed efforts at encouraging Canadians to try to resolve their family law disputes through negotiation, mediation, and collaborative law before turning to the courts, where family court judges who are strangers to families have to make decisions about them, affecting both the parents and the children. In part one of the series, I also explained which legislation applies when, because in Canada we have both federal and provincial laws dealing with family law subject matter, with issues related to children, support, and property, with issues which a typical family might encounter when a relationship ends. I invite you to listen to that episode if you're interested in this point specifically. I also want to make a caveat before I go on that this series is not an exhaustive consideration of all the changes to the legislation. I am simply highlighting subjects which I believe are of particular interest to the public. Today our topics are relocation and very importantly, family violence. These are topics frequently tackled by family courts across Canada. And I applaud those behind the recent amendments for selecting these areas of the law and putting them in focus. The topic of relocation was in need of some rethinking and clarification for some time. Family violence is never talked about enough from my perspective. It is a very serious and festering problem affecting individuals, children, family units, permeating into virtually all areas of life, often endured in silence, unseen. It must be brought into the light and dealt with. It must be talked about and tackled. The amendments to the legislation are a step in the right direction. But again, much work remains to be done in this area. And when I talk more specifically about family violence, you will uh, hopefully appreciate how the amendments are tackling this important subject in the context of an inquiry about children's best interests let's talk about relocation first you might have heard of this topic referred to as mobility by family law lawyers or your mediator perhaps the term refers to a situation where one parent proposes to move with or without the children but for our purposes i'm going to talk about a proposed relocation with the children And here, from a practical perspective, we are talking about a move which would affect the other parent's relationship with the children in some material way, not a move one street further from the current residence, something more than that. Mobility is an issue family courts in Canada have handled each and every day. Parents move for a variety of reasons. They repartner, they find jobs elsewhere. Sometimes when a relationship ends, a parent might wish to return to their place of origin, perhaps because after the separation and in the place to which they moved to be with the other parent, they have no support network and they need one there are a whole host of reasons a parent may want to move. So again, this is not a new issue. We family law lawyers and mediators have also traditionally addressed it in separation agreements and parenting plans. For example, a classic mobility clause would say that if a parent wishes to move with the children, that parent will give the other notice of, say... 60 90 or 120 days before making the proposed move that period of notice would give the other parent a chance to react to the proposed move before it happens to consider how he or she might be affected by the move how the children would be affected by the move from the perspective of the parent's relationship with the children. That notice period would be a chance to possibly negotiate the issue or maybe figure out how the moving parent would compensate the other parent for increased costs of having contact with the children, given the increased distance. Or if there was no room to negotiate, or if efforts at negotiation failed, the issue could be resolved by the court. Before the recent amendments to the legislation on the topic of mobility, those of us involved in family law, judges, lawyers, mediators, arbitrators, we were all, how shall I put it, without sounding too legalistic directed by the Supreme Court of Canada on how to deal with the issue in a 1996 decision called Gordon and Gertz the SCC as we call it had provided us with a roadmap for considering and deciding the issue of mobility when parents could not agree on the move To begin with, the court held that a custodial parent could not move without the other parent's consent. Further, the parent proposing to move had to demonstrate that there was a material change in the circumstances of the child since the original arrangements related to the child or children were made, which materially affected the child and that this change had to be one which was not foreseen or which would not be reasonably contemplated by the judge who made the initial order. Once this threshold of material change was met, the judge would then proceed to a fresh consideration of the child's or children's best interests, looking into any relevant facts from the perspective of what is best for the child and not for either parent. The recent amendments to the family law legislation have introduced clear rules about the issue of mobility, which begin with the introduction of the term relocation into both the Divorce Act and the Children's Law Reform Act. I am going to read you the definition from the CLRA. It's very, very similar to that in the Divorce Act. Here it goes. Relocation means a change in residence of a child or of a person who has decision-making responsibility or parenting time with respect to the child or is an applicant for a parenting order in respect of a child that is likely to have a significant impact on the child's relationship with A, another person who has decision-making responsibility or parenting time with respect to the child, or is an applicant for a parenting order in respect of the child, or B, a person who has contact with respect to the child under a contact order. And in this discussion, I'm not going to consider the uh, meaning of contact order. We are focusing on parents who have decision-making responsibility and parenting time. And you will recall I discussed these topics in our last episode. Let's make note of the phrase significant impact. That is what I was alluding to when I said earlier that here we are not talking about a move in the same neighborhood, two streets over. We are talking about a relocation which would make a difference to the quality or quantity of the relationship between a parent and a child. The Amended legislation now contains some very clear rules around such a proposed move with the children. They include the following. The parent who proposes to move must give the other parent 60 days notice in writing. That notice must contain detailed information about the proposed move and the content of the notice. The type of information it must contain is actually set out in the legislation. The other parent then has a choice. If they oppose the move, they must notify the first parent of their objection within 30 days, also in writing. And here too, the notice of objection must be detailed. If they object, the move cannot take place, until the court makes a decision on the issue. The other alternative for the second parent is, of course, to do nothing, not to respond to the notice of the proposed move, meaning not to object to it, the result being that the parent proposing to move can move. We are also provided with factors which the court is to weigh when considering whether to authorize the proposed relocation. These focus on the child's or children's best interests. So for the purposes of this inquiry, we are importing the usual factors we explore. In the Children's Law Reform Act, for example, they are listed in Section 24. But under the relocation sections in the CLRA, for example, we get additional factors, a list of seven factors the court is to take into account. If you are interested in the specifics, take a look at section 39.3. The amended legislation also gives us specifics about burden of proof. What does this term mean, you may ask? It's a legal term describing responsibility for proving something before the court. For people who are not familiar with this term, I think the easiest way to describe it is to use an example from criminal law, because the public is most familiar with burden of proof in that context. In a criminal case involving a murder charge, for example, the accused does not need to prove that he or she is innocent. The prosecution, in Canada that is the Crown, has the burden of proving that the accused is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Here, we say that the Crown has the burden of proof. Going back to relocation, the amended legislation gives us specific directions on burden of proof. Here, in situations where parents share the children's time equally, the parent proposing to move bears the burden of proving that the move is in the children's best interests. In situations where their children are with one parent the majority of the time, the other parent has the burden of proving that the move is not a good idea and not in the children's best interests. In all other situations, the parties to the court case have the burden of proving whether the move is in the children's best interests, I know some of these are very fine differences, and there's a fair bit of legal lingo here, but it's the best way I can explain this right now. Many commentators on these amendments relating to relocation have noted, and I want to also draw to your attention, the fact that while the decision from the Supreme Court of Canada, Gordon and Gertz, directed us against considering the reason for the move. That factor is now specifically listed among those to be examined when a court is deciding whether to authorize a move or not. I hope you're still awake because these discussions about legislation and specific sections and burdens of proof can get a bit technical. But what I want to get across most of all is that we now have specific rules embedded in the new legislation which give parents more certainty around steps to be taken when a parent proposes to move with children let's turn to family violence a very important and impactful topic in family law our legislation has always talked about family violence and before the amendments the children's law reform act for example directed judges to consider incidents of family violence when making decisions about children The amended legislation has given us further clarity and amplified the importance of this subject, including when best interests of children are being considered and orders made as to who will make decisions about them, how much time they will spend in the care of each parent, and so on. Let's focus on the Divorce Act It now, for the first time, includes a very specific definition of family violence. And I'm going to read the definition because it conveys so very well the circumstances in which many parents and other family members find themselves. The definition is not exhaustive, meaning it's not closed And there may be other examples of violence. And second, it is very broad, as you will see. It goes beyond what many members of the public currently think of as family violence. Here it is. Family violence means any conduct, whether or not the conduct constitutes a criminal offense, by a family member toward another family member, that is violent or threatening or that constitutes a pattern of coercive and controlling behavior or that causes that other family member to fear for their own safety or for that of another person and in the case of a child the direct or indirect exposure to such conduct and includes a physical abuse including forced confinement But excluding the use of reasonable force to protect themselves or another person. B. Sexual abuse. C. Threats to kill or cause bodily harm to any person. D. Harassment, including stalking. E. The failure to provide the necessaries of life. F. Psychological abuse. G. Financial abuse. H. Threats to kill or harm an animal or damage property and I, the killing or harming of an animal, or the damaging of property. The courts are now specifically directed to consider the impact of family violence on child-related arrangements, in addition to the traditional factors related to best interests of the child. They are to take into account the nature, seriousness, and frequency of the family violence and when it occurred. And here I'm reading the specific factors from the amended legislation. They are to take into account whether there is a pattern of coercive and controlling behavior in relation to a family member, whether the family violence is directed toward the child, or whether the child is directly or indirectly exposed to the family violence, the physical, emotional, and psychological harm or risk of harm to the child, any compromise to the safety of the child or other family member, whether the family violence causes the child or other family member to fear for their own safety or for that of another person any steps taken by the person engaging in the family violence to prevent further family violence from occurring and improve their ability to care for and meet the needs of the child and any other relevant factor. Part of the impetus behind spelling out in this considerable detail the sections related to family violence is the growing belief based on science that different types of violence may have different impact, different effect on those experiencing it or being exposed to it, as in children observing their parents, one being violent against the other. So it's important to examine specific types of violence with some granularity to better understand Their specific impact. There is now a stronger magnifying glass being used to examine the specific instances of violence. Again, here we are talking about questions related to family violence being raised in the context of decisions around decision-making responsibility and parenting time. If you recall from the last episode, These are the new terms we use for the old terms of custody and access. Of course, we have another area of the law, which is focused on holding perpetrators of family violence responsible for their actions, and that is criminal law. Family courts do not do that, but family court judges always have And will continue to consider any history of violent conduct in the many forms listed in the new sections of the legislation when making decisions related to children. Because the overarching goal is to ensure that any such decisions are made in the children's best interests. I hope that my overview of the amendments in this and the last episode is of some assistance to you. It's always a challenge talking to the public about the law without making the presentation too technical. So I have tried to give you, hopefully, an accessible overview of the issues. My goal is, as always, to help you navigate your way to a saint split. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com. Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app will make future episodes available to you automatically. Signing off for now.